Good morning, church. Good to see so many of you here this morning. Hope you're ready to, to worship God. Would you please stand together as we sing Be Thou My Vision.
Well, this morning as we begin worship, I uh, wanted to read to you a passage from 1 Peter. And uh, Peter begins his, his book here uh, with a wonderful, a beautiful um, description of the gospel, what we've been studying the last four weeks here. And then he follows it up with this instruction for us as believers. This is 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways. Uh, from the feudal ways, I lost my spot. <laughs> You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's continue singing. We bow our hearts, we bend our knees, oh Spirit, come make us We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh Lord, we cast down our idols. So give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands, give us pure
be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff Jennings. I get to have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Bethany Church. We are a gospel-centered church whose mission is helping people follow Jesus. We're glad you're here to worship with us this morning, whether you're here in person or watching online. We're glad you're there uh, too. Well, many of you probably saw uh, our elders, our video we sent out this week and our elders' decision uh, to have everyone continue to wear masks. It was not a fun decision to make uh, this week. But as we met this week, our elders felt a unanimous kind of conviction, and we were convinced that a necessary compromise that could be the least divisive or awkward on a Sunday morning uh, was to continue to wear masks rather than becoming the mask police. If you haven't seen that video, uh, I encourage you to go watch it later today. You can go to one of our social media accounts and Click on the, the links there and you'll, you'll find it. And I know, I know it is frustrating for all of us, and in particular for those of you who have been vaccinated. But I want to thank you this morning, everybody in this room, for your graciousness, for your patience, uh, and I want to encourage you to not let us as a church give, give uh, the mask mandate or Governor Brown any more influence over us than just wearing the mask. By, what I mean by that is, uh, don't let it get us down in heart today, too. Don't give more influence than need be right now. Uh, as we obey, as we follow you, we're actually, you're not actually obeying and submitting to Governor Brown. I don't believe that. You're obeying God right now, as the elders of this church have asked to continue to keep going. So don't let your joy be stolen this morning, even in that frustration. Jesus reigns. He's on the throne in heaven. He is coming back. So don't let a little piece of fabric get between Jesus and your heart this morning, okay? Let's, let's all do it together. Well, I want to just, uh, just welcome you, especially if you're new this morning. We've got something called a Next Step card. It looks like this. If you're new, we'd love for you to fill one of these out and uh, bring it out to uh, the gathering place, which is out there. We have a welcome center out there. You can bring it out. It gets us in some information about you, and we'll give you an exchange for a Bethany Church uh, water bottle out there. It'll be our gift uh, to you today. Uh, for being here with us. Uh, we're glad you're here this morning. Well, let's continue um, in a time of worship, just quieting ourselves, kind of taking a breath, coming out of the busyness, whatever the hectic week has been like for you. It was a hectic week for me. I'm sure yours is pretty similar. And let's just pause and thank the Lord that we are here, we are together doesn't feel like we wanted to yet, but we are here in this room together to worship as a local body. So let's bow and pray. Lord, there is nothing better than to gather with your people and praise your name, to sing, to pray, to shout out and declare your, uh, your loving kindness, which is better than life, your faithfulness to us. Your heart's desire this morning that we, we set aside this day, this time to worship you together. And so we ask you to be pleased with our obedience. Be pleased with our submission to your requests, Lord. This morning, as we gather, we declare to you, you are great. You are mighty. You, Jesus, sit on the throne of heaven and rule the earth from there, one day to return to reunite a new heaven and new earth as all formal things will pass away. So let us live this morning, I ask you, Spirit, with, uh, with eternity in our minds. Let us fight against eternity amnesia or gospel amnesia this morning, remembering that your 
Mercy is new every morning. And as we hear and listen to and remember the merciful gospel of Jesus this morning, may we be sanctified. As Paul said in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that's in light of all the gospel truths, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Lord, as we talk sanctification today, as we talk real-life obedience and growth, may you do it in real time. Transform us today. Change us today. Let no one leave this place without some kind of growth or transformation, we ask in the name of our holy God. Lord, bless our tithes and offerings today as we finish up this fiscal year. Uh, bless that what has been given to further the, the, the message and the mission of Bethany Church. And may we be on this street corner until the day you return and taking the message out from this corner to Canby in the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, a couple things to bring to your attention this morning, like we usually do. You'll see them in your worship folder or on the screen behind me. What do we got? Oh, church bus pickup. If you heard, we heard about this last week. We have a bus that we love to take out to Hope Village, Ratcliffe, other places to uh, pick up those who are unable to get here, in particular those who are in wheelchairs as our bus has a lift. We're looking for uh, four volunteers uh, we're asking for one Sunday a month and just a one-year commitment. We're not saying the next five years, ten years, or till Jesus returns. We're asking for one Sunday a month for a year. So if, you, if you're willing to get trained, you don't need a special license, be like driving probably like a 15-passenger van, uh, we ask you to fill out a next step card today, turn it in in the boxes, offering boxes in the back wall, or call the church office. Summer camps are back. Yeah, that's a, that's a big deal. We, were not, we did not go last year. They weren't really even ha- having them last year. There are maybe two summers, actually. I don't even know. I'm losing track of years and time now. Uh, maybe you are too. But they're on this summer. Uh, kids camp will be July 19th to 23rd. Uh, we have a great discounted price this year because of uh, great funds and giving that you, Bethany Church, have done to scholarship uh, partially every child. So you can sign up online by going to that website there. You see it in your worship folder. You can type it in later today and sign up for that. Hope you, uh, that's for kindergarten, or no, third through sixth grade, I believe. Uh, and then we got middle school camp coming up and, and, and high school camp coming up. Excited to have these camps back on. Students are going to take an awesome adventure together to dig into God's Word. There's going to be all kinds of great activities. Middle school camp that you see here will be for those going into 7th and 8th grade, uh, August 12th through 14th. And then high school camp you see on there will be July 25th through 31 there. There are scholarships available and ways to actually, uh, what do you call it, David, uh, earn funds by working at the, uh, the rummage sale. Uh, so we don't want anybody to miss out this year. We want every youth to go. So parents, please sign up. Uh, they're going to be great trips, great adventures. If you have any questions about these camps or scholarship opportunities, talk to Pastor David. He's back there at the uh, soundboard today. Well, that call to uh, sanctification, to a, to a holy life, that's a, that's a big one. Um, so as we sing this next song, let's start uh, with, a, with a holy affection. That's, that's where a, a holy life starts. So let's sing with the king of my heart.
Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 3, uh, 14 through 19. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. I love the end of that song. When the night is holding on to me, God is still holding on. Uh, I don't know, maybe you feel like that this morning. I once heard a pastor say, you know, if you could actually lose your salvation, you would. (laughs) The point was that God holds on to us. He is faithful even when we are not. He is faithful even when we're in the midst of what we'd call a dark night of the soul. Maybe you feel like your grip is barely holding on to him today. We just sung that song. Believe that in your heart. When the night's got a grip on me, he's got me. I love the end of that song. I love when we sing it. Well, we get to talk about the gospel today and how it impacts our heart and life. We've been working through our series called The Gospel It's Even More Than You Hoped by working through those four chapters. Do you remember them? Those four chapters of the gospel story. We've completed the process now of weaving those four chapters together. First, we were down on the ground view, the street view, by looking at God and man and Christ in response. And we've weaved that together with the 10,000 high up in the air view of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And as we've completed these four chapters, I really hope you have felt encouraged or challenged to see your individual life your own individual gospel story as part of something bigger, a larger story of God working in creation to unite all things in Jesus. Maybe this verse has taken on a new meaning for you in this series, Ephesians 1.10. His purpose in Christ is this, a plan for the fullness of time, end of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the reuniting of heaven and earth with a new heaven and a a new earth, a real physical place where we will live with real, physical, glorified, resurrected bodies and Jesus will reign forever there. But as we wait for that day, what's supposed to be happening to us in the mundane day-to-day grind of life and work and grocery shopping, and parenting, and filling up the car with gas, and all the mundane things that occupy like, occupy like 99% of your day, right? <laughs> Pretty much rep- repetitive things you've done. 
what's, it, what's life supposed to look like? What's supposed to be happening to us? This morning, I want to walk around a bit on that street level as we ask the question, how are we sanctified is the word. How are we sanctified? That is to ask, that word sanctified is to ask how we change day to day, how we grow day to day, hopefully in more obedience to be like Jesus in our earthly, daily, mundane lives. Because that's where real holiness and growth takes place. As I said, 90% of your life, 99% of your life is that mundane. You only make maybe, what, four or five really now, really big decisions in your life. So most of your sanctification and your holiness is not lived out in that place. It's lived where? On the street level, isn't it? The day-to-day making breakfast and brushing teeth and disciplining kids and all this stuff that goes with life. So amidst all the challenges and stresses of ups and downs, what does it mean to grow? That's the question. And how do we grow? That's what the word sanctification means. So how does this process of change take place for a disciple of Jesus? Is it just try harder and try harder to obey the commands of God? Or is it, you know what, I'm saved by grace alone, so I don't really think too much about that kind of lackadaisical response. Actually, it's neither of those. It's neither of those. Neither of those, however you say that word. Neither or neither. Real change comes from the gospel being worked deep into the heart. Not just try harder. So this morning, we're going to look at two responses to God. Here's the two. Here's where we're headed today. The one is moralism, or you could call it religion's another word for it. That's the one response, moralism. And the other one's going to be real gospel growth. So just two responses we're going to look at this morning to God and the gospel. So hopefully you got your outline there, Ephesians 3 open, as we're going to begin by looking at our first response, moralism. What is it? Well, here's my own kind of short definition of what it is. Moralism is an external, outward, external project to get right with God that never actually addresses your heart. It's external we got to unpack this this morning. We're going to spend a bit of time on this first point because I think the gospel doesn't make sense to you unless you first understand what moralism is. Sanctification doesn't even make sense because I'm not saying this morning we don't want to actually grow in obedience and holiness. No, no, no. But I want it to be real obedience and holiness for us this morning, not something out external. And we're going to spend some time here too because this is the one response to the gospel most prevalent in the church. The other would be like irreligion, immorality, go live your life, find your own meaning, which is actually another form of moralism and legalism, but that's for another day. But we're going to talk about moralism because that's most prevalent in churches all around the world. Moralism, I said, or religion, and it's actually kind of the default mode of the human heart. Default meaning that's how you wake up in the day, most of us. Kind of this moralistic kind of understanding of life and God, and religion, and Christianity, moralism or religion. It's it's the idea that good works come from a place that's trying to to, to self-justify the individual or put God in debt to the individual. Well, I'll do this, or I'll expect this from you, God, if I live this way, or actually even to keep God at bay. 
I'm good enough. I've got got my life together. I don't really need to think about a Savior or think about a need for a Savior. I mean, look at Ephesians 3, our passage for today, with even just a really precursory look at it in this passage where Paul prays for the Ephesians. It's clear to see that as he prays for them, it's important to see this too, these are Christians he's praying for, that something, he's praying for something to happen internally, inside of you. Let's give it a little precursory look. He's praying for a spiritual strength and a growth and a spiritual life that, that springs from the center. Here's a few verses. Verse 16, may you be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, your insides. Verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your heart. Another internal word there. Uh, And verse 17 as well, and faith that is internal, this faith that's inside of you will have roots and be grounded, kind of internal grounding deep language in love. Uh, Verse 18 and 19, so that internally you may experience, as Anna read, not just know something with knowledge, but experience something, truly know. What was it in the passage? Did you see it? Jesus' love, His love for you, humanity. And so you'll be filled with God's fullness inside, internally, so that from the inside out, you live for God. That's why we chose this passage this morning. I mean, a quick summary of that passage speaks so much of our inner life, our heart, and the internal experience of God, not just a head knowledge, but experiencing Him in a fullness that's so much richer than just knowledge. Sounds like 1 John, the book we went through last spring. The verse, 1 John 4 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. There it is, internal. And He in God, so that we've come to know and believe, there it is again, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There it is. It's said in a different way. This idea of internal work of God, to bring the love of God to a real full experience in us, and us in God, and and his love internally abiding and transforming us from the inside out. But moralism is something external. Moralism, as we said in our first point, is that external project or effort to be good on the outside with ever even addressing the Christ dwelling in our heart, the roots of Ephesians 3, the grounding of your heart and soul. Where is it? The internal experience of abiding, 1 John, or knowing something really deep inside. There's a big difference. Moralism, another way to define it would be if we were to ever say or imply that we need to be good to be part of this club, or we need to get our life together before I can come to Jesus, or you've heard some people say, like, I should be better than this, or how can God forgive me? Underneath those little phrases is the assumption that you should be better on your own. Even the idea, how can God forgive me, a sinner like me? Underneath that phrase is actually a bit of pride. Have you ever thought about that? How could God forgive someone like me? Underneath that is the assumption, 
I'm actually a good person. I should be better than this before God would be willing to say, all right, I'll forgive you there, but not there. That's moralism. Or if our gospel sounds at all like this, you must believe and live right to be saved, that is moralism. Remember, we've just unpacked four chapters. The gospel is, and I hope we've grasped this at the end of those four weeks, that the gospel is this. Jesus objectively accomplished something. Remember, good news, not good advice. He accomplished something. He paid for sin. He paid for our sins. And through repentance and faith, we have, which are a gift from God, we give our sin to Jesus, and He gives us His righteousness. That's the gospel, period, full stop, right there. That's the gospel. The good news, not advice. And by believing and trusting and repenting and believing that, it's yours. Stop, period, right there. That's it. Moralism is truth without grace. It's behavior modification without hard examination or change. Take a look at the handout in your worship folder. Let me see if I think I've got mine here. Take a look at the half sheet in your worship folder. And if you're in a life group, you're going to use this at your life group, so hold on to this this week. This was something from, I think we've actually had it out one other time, but something from Tim Keller, one of his books. And I want you to look at the top few of these, to look at the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Outward in, isn't it? The gospel says, I'm accepted, internal, therefore I obey. That's a big difference. We'll look at motivation, the second line there. Motivation to obey in religion or moralism is based on fear and insecurity. When it's coming from the gospel, sanctification is based on grateful joy, gratitude, an overflow, 1 John, be full, or Ephesians 3, be full of the love of God. Here's the third one. Religion or morality says obey in order to get things from God. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a transactional relationship. I do this for you. You do this for me. The gospel says I obey just because I get God and have God and delight in God and looking like Him. It's totally different. And you can look at the rest of those later today or in your life group when you gather. But our first response in the church when we hear this is always kind of a quick mental ascent. Yes, all right, I get that. Totally get it. Why are we even talking about this today? We know we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. I, I'm not a moralist. I mean, that's, that's those people. That's them. Jesus makes it really clear that this is a real issue for all people. Not just non-Christians, not just those trying to live apart from God, everyone. One of the places is the Sermon on the Mount. Let's use that as just a quick example today. Now, most Christians, even, included in this, when they read the Sermon on the Mount and they hear Jesus say, here's some of those phrases from that most famous sermon of all time, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, don't get angry, even. Well, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, don't even lust. Whoa, what's this guy, where's he going with this? Another one. Well, you've heard it said love your neighbor, but I say even love your enemy. 
All right, so we hear that sermon, and as Jesus' hearers did that day, and they say, you know what? Okay, I've been trying hard. I, I, he's talking to me. I, I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to, I want to love, I, you know, I love my neighbor, but okay, so maybe I just got to try a little harder is what Jesus is saying. You're in first gear. Kick it up to fifth gear if you want to be a disciple. All right, so I'll try a little harder. I, I will be better, Jesus. I hear your words. I will be better. But then you get to the end of the sermon, and Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare from them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. (laughs) Do you see what he's saying there? He's not talking in this sermon to one group of people that's good and one group of people that just needs to try harder. He's actually talking to a bunch of moral religious people who all look good. They all look good. Do do you see what they said there? We prophesied in your name. We did mighty works in your name. We did your will. What they're saying is, Jesus, how can you say you never knew us? We obeyed. Both groups there look good. Why? And Jesus still says, I never knew you. Because one group was moralist. They were religious. They did good things externally with selfish motives, fear-based motives, to be accepted motives, to, to get the things of God and not obey from a heart of gratitude, from an internal place from an inner being, a heart that's full of the the love of God, overflowing with the fullness of God, as Ephesians 3 says. That's kind of scary, isn't it? (laughs) It means that you can look like the best disciple, the best Christian ever, and you could get there and have Jesus say, I don't know you. External, moral, is outward in. The gospel is inside out. Jesus knows true godliness springs from the heart. So the entire Sermon on the Mount actually says, you can look good externally, but I want your heart. Churches and families around the world are riddled with this kind of morality. Jesus was speaking to the religious when he gave his most famous sermon. So it takes place in churches, it takes place in our families, but we also teach this to our kids at times. One of my most profound personal experiences now I want to share with you with external moralism was in elementary school at a Christian school. I remember it so vividly to this day, and it still impacts me to this day. Remember those, um, they were like periodicals, uh, things that came to the school. I think they were, were they called weekly readers? Something like that. You'd get it. And I think they were the ones you could look through. It was also a book catalog. You could order books out of them. Well, I remember getting those all the time. We would look through them in our class. And everybody, oh, see this book? Look at that. Look at that. And uh, they'd send them to your class. You would order books. And then the book would get delivered. And somebody from the office would bring this big box of books to your classroom. You'd wait to get your book out of there. And they'd deliver them to your class. And the teacher would hand them out. Well, I didn't order those very much. We didn't have a ton of expendable uh, income when I was a kid, 
But I remember one time my mom said, all right, go ahead. You can order one book. You can pick one out, take a look through the catalog, pick one out. So I poured through those pages and, and, and looked at those books. And, I, you know, and when you're a kid, how do you pick a book? By its cover. Yeah, somebody got it. There you go. By its cover. You look and see if it's got a great cover. That's one time you judge a book by its cover as a kid. What does it look like? Show me the cover. Man, this cover had on it this, this fire-breathing dragon. He looked, he, you could say he looked kind of evil, actually, but there was this warrior, this knight fighting him, and it looked exciting. It looked fun. I couldn't wait to get it, so I ordered it. Well, the delivery day came, and my teacher passed out all the books, except mine. I'm thinking, like, where's my book? I turned in the money. I turned in the check, and my mom wrote it and signed it. And I was just thinking, where's mine? All of a sudden, my teacher, she calls me up to her desk and has my book there. I'm like, oh, okay, well, there it is. She's going to give it to me. And she holds it up. She looks at me and she goes, this is evil, Jeff. This is evil. You shouldn't read this. Do you see the cover of it? And I'm like, yeah, it looks awesome. Actually, I didn't say that. I was actually starting to feel inside internally now a bit ashamed and guilty. And she had the class come up and take turns as I'm standing there ripping the book up. I'm serious. How do you think some of the boys in my class did that? They looked at me like this. That was evil. (laughs) That terror. But what was I taught in that moment? You should be good. This thing here is bad. Don't do bad things or you'll be shamed in public. That's what I was taught in that moment. So replace bad behavior, tear it up, replace it with good behavior. The perfect, the moral, religious motivation, all external, all self-based, all self-preservation, self-image in that moment I was taught, not gospel change. What could that have looked like? Well, first of all, she wouldn't pull me up in front of the entire class. Talk about a show of moralism. Let's all do this together. She would have pulled me aside, and she would have said to me, hey, Jeff, I saw the book you got. It looks really exciting, but I want to talk to you about it. I'm not quite sure as I look at the cover, and it looks like a good and evil story, but I just want to be sure as we read it. Maybe she would have said, you know what, I'll get a copy too. Let's read it and talk about it or with my mom and dad, so gave them a heads up. And she could have said, you know what? This book looks like an amazing story. And if there's a lot of, of evil and good and evil in this, do you know something, Jeff? Jesus died so you'd be freed from the bondage of the evil one. Jesus died so you'd be freed from the power of the devil. And you know what? If we read this story together, we might see some good gospel themes in there like that. And I don't want you to be influenced as you read a story like this. I want you to see and know the true story of Jesus freeing you from evil So let's read it together and see if that's in there. And if not, guess what? We'll be able to pick it out because we know the gospel true story. How do you think that would have impacted me as a kid differently than let's rip it up in front of everybody? Different? You better believe it. That's moralism versus the gospel. Ephesians 3 is concerned with your inner spiritual life and growth and love, and it clearly portrays God's grace by the power of the Spirit working inside you so you can sink your roots into that foundation. 
It's internal work of love that motivates the heart to obedience through gratitude and love. I was told, don't do bad stuff. Don't do bad stuff. You hear that and you're thinking, all right, but you're a kid. Surely as an adult, we've worked through this and we understand in the church moralism isn't in the church, or at least not me, but what does moralism in the church look like? Because Jesus was probably teaching to mostly adults in the Sermon on the Mount. There'd be kids there, but what does it look like in the church? Here's a few examples. When we're criticized, or in your life too, this doesn't have to be just the church, but in your life too, or marriage, or family, or friends, when we're criticized, we're not just disappointed we're devastated and angry because I'm a good person. How dare you criticize me? Here's another one. We avoid hard conversations and phone calls when we know we need to reconcile. Out of fear for what might be exposed or what I might have to say or hear. Here's another one. When things go wrong in your life, you're either mad at God because he owes me, I've been good, or you're mad at yourself when you realize you haven't been keeping up your end of the bargain. That's moralism. With church life, here's what it looks like. We make appearances, but we won't, won't make relationships for fear of being known or exposed. In some of you in your life even, moralism has turned you into a doormat for people. What do I mean by that? You won't speak up when someone hurts you. Yeah, I want to be seen as nice. I'm, I'm, a nice. I'm a nice Christian. And so you become a doormat over the time and years and decades in church life. And you don't speak up. Good, Christians are good people. When someone asks how we're doing, here's another one in church life. When someone asks how we're doing, we always give the same pat response. We had a lady a couple churches back, so I can say this, she went a couple churches back. Every time you ask her how you're doing, amazed by his grace. How you really doing? Amazed by his grace. But how you really, you get it, right? That's moralism in the church. We talked about it with Abraham. The church has got to be a place where you can expose your fears, your weaknesses, your sins, because the gospel's bigger. It's bigger. There's nothing that can be shared or known or opened up or shared about you here or in your life that would make God reject you. He already knows. It's bigger. Here's the other way it shows up in the church. So one is some of those kind of things. Here's the other way it shows up in our life, not just the church. Well, okay, I'm seeing some nasty stuff come out of me. It must be the circumstances' fault, right? It must be the circumstances' fault. I don't like the stuff I see coming out of me, so instantly blame the circumstance, you know. It's the other driver. If he just wouldn't have pulled over that quick, I wouldn't have screamed. I wouldn't have gotten angry at the kids in the back. How about this one? If I just had more money, I wouldn't get so frustrated every time the kids empty out the pantry. <laughs> if I had more money, if I just had different looks, I mean, life would have been so much easier. Oh, if I could just get out of this marriage, I wouldn't, oh, I wouldn't be so yucky all the time. Or the, maybe it's the church. I got to get out of this place. I can't believe I'm in a place like this full of these kind of people. I got to get out of here. It's all those. It's the circumstances' fault. Moralism is alive and well because while we believe the gospel, and I know we do, 
many times we functionally operate out of all kinds of other different gospels, reputation, acceptance, pleasing others, performance, accomplishment, external badges of honor and virtue and morality or affiliation. That's a big one lately. I'm with that group. No, I'm with that group. I'm with Paul. I'm with Peter. Does that sound familiar? Affiliation. I'm one of those kinds. Man, it's alive and well, isn't it, when you hear stuff like that? We, we believe the gospel with our minds. We function out of all these different religion, morality. And you know what? It's an enemy of the gospel. It's an enemy of the gospel. So let's look for a few minutes at the gospel. That's the one response that the church struggles with, that I struggle with, I struggle with, that I know you struggle with most. So let's look at the gospel, the gospel change, our second response. The gospel creates an internal renovation of the heart. Internal renovation. Back to our Ephesians passage. Paul's praying the gospel will come to bear on the heart of that church. The heart of that church. Inner strength from the Spirit. Christ's love dwelling, the language says, richly in your heart. So they begin to experience the height and the depth of it and, and be so filled and overflowing with God's love. Do you see the difference there? Internal. Being rooted and grounded in this. So what's the heart then? That's important. What's your heart? If I ask my kids that or you ask over at our Sunday school classes, what do they tell you? It's that beating thing, right? that pumps your blood. But when the Bible speaks of the heart, which it does some like 900 times actually, so I guess it matters, right? When the Bible speaks of it, it's not just your emotions. It's not less than that. It is your emotions, but it's more. The heart is the seat of your personality, your commitments, your will, your reason. It's like the control center of who you are. It's the central processing unit of who you are to use computer language. It's what produces your inner life. And the Bible says, the heart. And we know that what we're full of inside comes out of us, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. When moralism is outward, the gospel is inward. an inside to outward renovation of your heart. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey. Not obey me, then I'll love you. That's the difference. And true obedience, which we want, we're going for, comes from hearts that have this gospel renovation, God-loving hearts, overflow of gratitude. Read that gospel side today of this handout. Why is that? Because when you know, I don't just mean know. I'm talking about the experience, the language of Ephesians 3 and 1 John that we read. When you know that you're justified, saved by grace alone, nothing else added to that, not by works, and that in Christ there's nothing you can do that makes God love you more or less, we can begin to obey out of security, out of rest, out of peace, out of trust in God. It's an inside-out work. Let's take a look at a few verses to show that. Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your what? You can do better than that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your 
yes, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So our confession of belief, yes, it must be a mental assent. There's probably some prayer attached to that with words, but it must come from believing, regenerated, born again, convicted heart. A heart of repentance and faith. Uh, Romans 2. Paul even knew this back into the Old Testament. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. Ah, external. There it is. Moralism. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. What they used to do. But a Jew is one, true Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is actually a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. That means the law, external. Be good, God accepts you. His praise is not uh, from man, but from God. So going back to the Old Testament, even Paul understood the act of, of circumcision for Jews was external. It needed also a heart circumcision. Like the law. The law is good, right? The law is meant to convict us, God's Word. The law is meant to show us how to live once you become saved, but once you've been given a new heart. The law will never save. So how are you saved? Here's one more verse today. Ezekiel now. This is going back way before Jesus. I'll give them a new heart, one heart, and a new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I'll give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes. He wants you to obey, right? But where does it come from? The heart, the new heart. And keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Oh, that's why Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You weren't my people. You didn't have the heart that Ezekiel says. We are saved when the Holy Spirit comes in and renovates us from the inside out. It's like a whole entire renovation by taking away that dead, stony heart that's unable to believe. It's called regeneration. It precedes everything. It gives us this new heart, a new renovated inner life, rooted and grounded in Christ's love, Ephesians says. To do what? To now obey. So obedience matters. We're talking about sanctification today. To now obey. Do you see the difference? I hope you see the difference here. Moralism is external, outward in. The gospel is internal to external, outward. Roots of the tree, right? To the fruit of the tree. Another way to put it. So what are your roots in? Are your roots in Jesus this morning? Or man, maybe you're thinking, my roots have been in my performance for decades. And you're actually just this morning going, I think he's I think that's me. It's okay. It's never too late to repent and put your roots in Jesus. What are your roots in? Jesus or your performance? So let's talk about this internal renovation of the gospel that produces in us as it relates now to our sanctification. Let's talk about it for a moment. The gospel now, what does it produce? If it's happened to you, it produces an honest self-reflection and grace-fueled Effort, we're going to call it. An honest self-reflection and grace-fueled effort. This is why we say here the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z. Yes, it's for the conversion of non-believers, but it's for the Christians too. Paul in Ephesians 3 that we're looking at. This is important. In this passage, he's writing to Christians, not to non-Christians, 
he's writing to the church in Ephesus, this passage about Christians now, and yet he's telling them to be renewed in their heart, in their inner being, by the Spirit, with the love of Christ through faith. He's writing to real Christians to pray that the Ephesians would experience what they already believed to be true, the presence and love of Christ, because that's where real change comes from. But this is the problem for us. Most Christians don't live out of the gospel or their justification. That's that word being made right with God. That most Christians don't live out of their justification. They actually assess themselves according to their sanctification, how they're doing with God rather than what's already been done by God for them. And so you base how you're doing with God and just on how your day-to-day life is going. Now, this isn't the only truth relating to sanctification today that we're about to unpack. It's not the only one. There's other truths that relate to sanctification, but I think it's, it's one of primary importance. There's this amazing quote. It's a bit long. I'm going to read it to us because I think it's just fantastic. This man, Richard Lovelace, who wrote kind of a classic on spiritual growth, dynamics of spiritual life. He talks about this idea that most Christians don't live out of their justification, meaning what God has already done for them. They live out of and they assess their life. Man, I miss my quiet time today. God must really be displeased with me. Oh, man, I blew it with my temper again. I know God has like totally turned his back on me. He's not going to answer my other prayer requests. He surely can't. Most Christians live out of their sanctification, not their justification. Here's a quote. It's three slides. It's kind of long, but I think it's worth it. He says, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating, that means making it their own, the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, head knowledge maybe, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification, drawing their assurance, in other words, of acceptance with God from their sincerity or their past experience of conversion or their recent religious performance or relative and frequency of their conscience willful obedience. Few Christians know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther. That's Martin Luther's platform. You are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the holy, alien, and righteousness of Christ as the only ground of acceptance. Relaxing then in that quality of trust which will produce actually increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. That's what Ephesians 3 is getting at. Final slide. Much that we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification, that means now a defect in your actual growth, in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from doing great, doing good, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in fierce pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. In other words, we've got gospel amnesia. We're prone to wake up and forget about the amazing things that Jesus has done for us the justification and security we have with him. And so what do we do then? We rely on our performance. We rely on our good works. 
We rely on our standing with God that day. We rely on our sanctification for our justification is the kind of complex way to put it. Do you know what that means? That as your pastor, I'm going to have a much harder time convincing you of your security with God because of Christ's work, saved by grace alone. Much harder time convincing you of that than I am convincing you you should follow God's law. That's what that means. The gospel brings first this freeing, honest self-examination of your heart when you wake up every day knowing you are free in Christ. You are secure in Christ. Gospel growth and holiness comes out of that. There is nothing you could find out about yourself, that means, through self-examination, or your pastor could find out, or the elders, or anybody else in this church could find out about you that would make you lose Christ's love. And when you live in this gospel grace, you you live with, yes, a gospel-fueled effort. That becomes your default mode. Joyful, sacrificial service from the inside out. What did David say? I delight in your law. How could he delight in it? He'd had a heart already that loved and was wanting to pursue God. He wasn't trying to be moral. He was following his Lord who he loved. Moralism, the other, brings bondage, slavery, begrudging, resentful, rule-following duty. And that's why many pastors, parents, parishioners, put all of us in there, we resort to shame and guilt to manipulate behavior. It's actually quicker It actually looks easier. It actually gets results. Let's rip up the book. It gets results, but it kills. It maims. It destroys because it puts you on the eternal treadmill of performance. And that's exhausting. I can barely do a couple miles walking. (laughs) But look what the Apostle Paul does. He uses the gospel. And once you see it in Scripture, you go, whoa, it's all over every page. So here's a couple examples, and you'll talk about them in your life group. When Paul wants us to grow in forgiveness, what does he say? Forgive or I'm going to out you to the rest of the church. No. He says, think of how much you've been forgiven in Christ. When Paul wants the Christians to be generous with their money, does he go up and go, eh, 10%, you're at 9.5? No. He goes to them and he says to them, think about Christ who was rich and became poor so you could become spiritually rich. Get out of that. How about when he wants husbands now, husbands in here, to love their wives with sacrifice and tenderness? Does he get up there and say, come on, pull it together, man. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, he says, oh, think of Christ, the ultimate husband who faithfully loved and gave himself up for his messed up bride by giving up his life. Do you see the difference? Most of our problems, most, not all, but a lot of our problems come in light in, from a lack of understanding or proper appropriation of gospel truths. That's what that big quote was saying, or a lack of belief in these truths. Let me give you another example to close today. We'll wrap with this story. How many of you remember the Dirty Rose story? It was used in the 1990s in youth groups to promote sexual purity. 
Anybody remember that one? A couple of hands of people kind of in that Gen X millennial phase of life. I, I heard about this the first time talking to Robin. She had a youth leader that used it. And she, when she shared it with me, I had never seen it in the youth group. I'd grown up in youth groups, but I hadn't seen it. But I think it was everywhere, actually. Um, and it kind of looked like this. The pastor would take here what is a fresh rose. It's beautiful. And they would take the rose and they'd say to their, the kids all sitting there, I've got here in front of me this fresh just picked rose. Now I've cut off the thorns off of it even. You can hold it and you can touch it. It's beautiful. And it smells, oh man, so fresh. So pure. It's pristine. It's perfect and untouched. Isn't this beautiful? It is, isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful. I give my wife credit. That's one of her roses. In fact, the pastor would go on to say, it's so beautiful. I want you to see this thing. And in fact, I want it to get so close, I want you to be able to touch it. And I want you to be able to smell it. And so what would he do? He would take the rose and he'd pass it to the first person and say, I want you to just pass it around the room and let it go all the way back through every student in here. And during the passing around of that rose, the pastor would proceed to warn against the dangers of premarital sex, you don't want an STD, do you? You don't want to be pregnant, do you? All these things. It's all fun and games till you get herpes. That's what happened in youth groups. I'm telling the truth here. Putting the fear of moral failure in them with hardly any Bible. As the rose continued to go around the room, no gospel, all law. The end of a message like that, in passing a rose around, do you know what a rose looks like that's been manhandled by 100 teenagers? Like that. Like this. And the pastor would get the rose back. And he would hold it up with a disgusted look on his face. Guys, this is what you're giving me back? And he'd look at them and he'd say, now who in the world would want this? Would you be proud of this? Would you want to share this with your future spouse, he would say? Is this a lovely rose? Don't be a dirty rose, he would say. Now, this example probably produced enough shame in some, enough guilt in some to keep them from premarital sex, but some, and it killed them too. I was reading in a book this week for preparation for this message. Matt Chandler's book called Explicit Gospel. We've got some left on the table out there. And I was already planning on using this example when I came to the section of one of the chapters called The Dirty Rose. It's like, oh, there it is. Now, in Matt's story, Matt Chandler, he told the story how he'd been evangelizing to a girl in college. She was a few years older than him. She, he was in his early 20s. She was in her late 20s. She already had a child and was working in a bar. He'd been evangelizing to her all over the place, just trying and praying and hoping, and then he finally got her to attend a, a youth conference for young adults. And he was excited. She's going to hear the gospel he went on and shared. She's going to hear about it. 
and the pastor brought up a pristine rose. He brought it up there on the stage, and he proceeded to obviously do the thing that I just explained. He came up there, and he brought it. And, but all, the whole time, Matt said in the story, he's praying, Oh, Lord, use this example of the rose. Maybe well, Kim will hear the dirty rose story, and maybe this is how God will save her. He went on in his story to share that after the conference, all of a sudden, they walked back to the car, a few of his buddies and him and Kim, and she was kind of distant. She didn't say much in the car ride home. And over the next couple of weeks, Matt went on to share that she started pulling away from him, actually. She wasn't talking to him as much, and, and soon she finally just stopped talking to him. And he thought, that's so strange. Lord, we took her to hear the gospel. A few weeks later, he got a phone call from Kim's mom. She had fallen out of a car driving 70 miles an hour. Don't know how, he doesn't share the details, but he found out she would live. She was in the hospital. She was in bad shape. She would live. I'm going to go see her, he thought. So he went to the hospital and he visited her in the hospital. And they're having this just kind of precursory, kind of surface conversation. And right in the middle of the conversation, she looked at him and asked, Matt, do you think I'm a dirty rose? What a heart shattering moment. Absolutely shattering. You think it's by being good that God loves you? You think by being clean that Jesus will accept you? He went on to say the whole point of the story is Jesus wants the rose. He wants the dirty rose. He wants you. He died for the dirty rose. And by the way, that's all of us. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. This is all of us. And he is putting petals back on. He will make us into this. We come to him like this. But guess what? He's the one that wants that rose. Do you see the difference between moralism and the gospel? That's the gospel. And to use that story that he wants the rose will produce radical gratitude, faithfulness, and obedience a thousand times over this kind of example. You don't want to be this, do you? What a, it's slower, yes. It's harder, yes. It takes longer, yes. It doesn't produce results overnight. But guess what? That's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel that saves. The other kind kills, maims, destroys. Moralism, it kills, it divides us. Only the gospel's got the power to save and transform us from the inside out. Let's be about the gospel, even in our growth and change. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be people who are all about that inside out kind of transformation. That heart work, Lord, that only the Spirit can do. We want to see, we want to see moralism like just eradic eradicated from the church. Now, not that, that means that we don't want to grow and be holy, Lord, because you said, "Be holy, for I am holy." We want to be holy. We want to produce gospel disciples who love Jesus and obey here at Bethany Church. But Lord Jesus, let us do it from the inside out. Let us do it from the true gospel security 
Let us live out of our justification, knowing our security comes through Christ, in Christ, can never be lost in Christ. Let real change happen out of that here at Bethany Church. And when we see moralism, and we call it what it is, in love, in grace, and may we be all about that other kind of transformation, knowing Jesus wants us whatever we look like, and he'll be the one to change us. It's in Christ's name, amen. you please stand with us as we sing one more song?
Maybe you're wrestling today. Am I a moralist? Am I a gospel-loving, believing Christian? If you are, I'm glad. That's, a, that's the best thing you could wrestle with. If you're not sure, you've got to talk to somebody. You've got to find out, well, what are those words, repentance and faith? Go back, listen to our message two weeks ago. Two, don't leave here today not knowing. You can repent and trust and believe and be changed from the inside out and give up that treadmill rat race of just trying to look good. Let's go ahead and bless one another as we head out today. I got, no, I got no announcements, nothing for you. Let's just bless each other as we go today. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Have a blessed Sunday. Those of you in here, those of you watching online, have a great week. We'll see you back soon. Say hi to somebody that's been away for a while. I see some new faces today.